I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my thoughts on money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, what we like to call Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. I'm here with my two good friends, Mr. Dave Pernas and Sean Latimer today. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Happy Friday. Hey. Happy Friday. That's a good... Totally forgot. I'm going to be so up-spirited now uh, for the rest of this conversation. Happy Friday. Me too. <laughs> today, uh, Tra- Trevor does seem like he's in a good mood today. I love yeah. Fridays. <laughs> is it Burger Friday? It is Burger Friday. Yes. Anyway, let's not get distracted. All right, let's sorry. Let's talk about food. Um, today, we're going to talk about an article I wrote called Eat Your Own Cooking. And I opened the article talking about a date night that my wife and I had recently, which in the last seven months, we've only had three because we have a, uh, a two-year-old at home and a seven-month-old. And I talked about how we went to this restaurant, which we're foodies. We love going out to eat. And uh, when we get to a restaurant, we're going to go full bore, right? We're going to do appetizers, drinks, hers, alcohol, mine, not alcoholic. Um, we're going to share a couple meals, get dessert. So we're like studying the menu. Waitress walks over and she's like, hey, let me get your drink order. Let me know if you have questions about the menu. So I tell her, hey, we're thinking about this appetizer. I actually don't remember which one it was. Um, and like, what are your thoughts? And in the article, I talk about it. She like looks left, looks right. She wants to make sure no one's listening. Then she kind of leans in and just shakes her head and gives me this thought like, you don't want to order that. And it made me think of this saying we have kind of in the finance industry of eat your own cooking. If there's something on the menu that the wait staff or the chefs don't want to eat, you should probably take it off the menu. It's probably not a very good idea. Yeah, it's so true. And I enjoyed reading the article and it it made me laugh because I feel like we've all had those types of experiences where someone tells you like, well, this is what they'll tell you what to do, but don't, no, don't don't do this or don't get that. And uh, as Trevor alludes in the article, I I don't want to take the wind out of the sails, but he talks about how this applies to investment management. So I'm actually excited to hear what Dea's opinion is on that. So Trevor, tell us more about it. Yeah, well, kind of the thing that sparked the article, I think, is there was a report that Morningstar did, and it looked at a bunch of mutual funds, and of those mutual funds, the actual managing staff that uh, manages the investments, picks out the investments, how much do they have in their own capital allocated to the portfolio? So they looked at 15,000 mutual funds, and after looking at them, they realized that half of them, the managers didn't even have $1 in the fund. Um, surprising to you, Dave? That that is surprising to me. I'm. Uh, it, it's interesting because sometimes maybe the manager will cherry pick some securities for their own account. I I would intuitively I would have thought that number is a lot higher, but I do agree that generally speaking, there isn't that alignment that people might expect in the asset management or investment management community. Uh, uh, furthermore, I think it's in, it's incredibly important to know that your manager is willing to invest their own personal funds in the assets they're recommending to you. And uh, although we have many, many different assets here in the Bonser Group, and some may apply to certain investors or certain clients and and not others, or they may apply to us, uh, maybe our liquidity situation is such where we can't lock our money up for the next seven years, but uh, you know, John Smith or so-and-so client does have a different liquidity profile. So it's not it's not exactly the case that whatever a client's invested in, we're invested in ourselves, although the assets that we are invested in are are in client portfolios in some varying degrees. So so it's 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 important just the intent is there and the alignment and the alignment is there. Yeah, that's a good point. Do you think that that article is referring to more like retail mutual funds? Because I know some portfolio investment firms require a percentage of the employees income to be into the fund or, or something like that. 
So I've read a similar report for one of the guys at Morningstar, and he went even further because of kind of your questions, mm-hmm. like maybe the guy is managing a money market fund. And based on his situation, he really doesn't want to allocate to money market. And that Mm. makes sense to me. But he went even further and looked at kind of niche strategies, maybe strategies that are very sector focused, energy and things like that, and then highlighted some of the managers that had really big skin in the game. Um, But from their research, and I I think this can be argued, but they said that there's a really strong correlation from positive relative performance and skin in the game. And I think that is intuitive, but it's also nice to see that it's actually quantifiable. Uh, I, I absolutely agree. I think that if you are willing to put your own assets in it, uh, you're going to work harder in making sure that that your research is uh, you've done the root level work behind your opinions and recommendations. So it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. Uh, and it makes sense to me that managers would go uh, further in uh, in their research when they are putting their own funds in there. Although the optics behind it is difficult. If so, I think the research into exactly how much of a manager's money is invested in their own strategies, I think that visibility to really gauge that in the advisor you're talking to or the mutual fund manager or the hedge fund manager is a bit difficult. And you really just have to go by the character of the person at the end of the day and trust that when they're telling you, I have X amount of my assets in this strategy that I'm recommending to you, that that, that is, in fact, the truth. Oh, that's a good point. So what Dave is pretty much saying is it'd be hard to fact check how much of their assets are actually invested in that. But yeah, that's a good point. Well, yeah. in what the research they're doing here, it is somewhat reported, but the, the segments that they do it at are... Uh, very inconsequential, right? It's like if somebody has $50,000 or a million dollars, where some of these asset managers have seven-figure incomes anyway, so uh, proportionally it might not be that big of a deal. Is that what right. you're saying? Is like you don't want to know like how much absolute dollars you have in. You want to know what does it look like proportionally on your balance sheet. Right, exactly. Would it, would it, it take a holistic view? But there, all, there are some asset managers and some hedge – I know some hedge funds do this specifically where they say – Look, we have 50% of employee bonuses locked up in the master fund strategy. So uh, th- that that can be a policy, uh, although I, I have found that it's difficult uh, to enforce that. And I, it's not often that I see that in different uh, asset management type organizations. Yeah, it's kind of funny when something becomes a policy and you're chasing after an outcome you've seen, it actually becomes a lot less natural. Right. When people just naturally put their money in without a policy or a requirement, I think you get that correlation and that outcome. When you start requiring people, I think it's probably just more of a checking the box. Yeah, I, I agree. It should be done because you want to do it and you think it's the best rather than somebody's telling you, you know, telling you what to do. Uh, what about as far as you guys, when uh, do cl- is that something clients ask or do you tell them, look, I have my assets in these strategies, as I know everybody does at this table. Uh, how, how do you how do you broach that? Yeah, so I had a client ask me recently, and uh, this client is actually I consider kind of like a friend. So I think I peeled back the curtain a little bit more than I normally would, but I absolutely wanted him to know, like, hey, this is where my money's invested, and I used this Operation Magnify, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. a little later, that David used in showing, hey, these are the assets that we have. Uh, I have my portfolio, and I even gave him portions of my balance sheet. Like, this is where I have dedication, because if you really do look at my balance sheet, it's mainly investments at the Bonson Group and equity in my home, uh, and that makes up most of my balance sheet. Yeah, me too. Well, yeah, and to answer your question, yeah, I'm, I'm in the same boat. Uh, I, when we came from our previous financial 
career. I don't know how we say this without saying it. The when last you worked at a different institution than <laughs> yeah, you currently exactly. work at, which you're not going to say on this podcast, you did. Go ahead. A different type of investment process and investment management. And uh, I think that's part of the reason why uh, I know for myself I joined the Bonson Group is because I do believe in our investment process. And I truly believe that it's what's best for clients and myself. And uh, I think that that was kind of an aha moment is if that's how I would invest my own money, that's where I need to be. Yeah, and I think that conviction is important because, I don't know, everybody's different, but I'm like scared to be a hypocrite. I know in in one sense we all are. Uh, You know, we're not perfect. We don't uh, follow all of our own rules that we encourage other people to do. But I try really not to have a life of hypocrisy. So for me, it was a lot of conviction of wanting to have those real, transparent, and truthful conversations with clients. And I talk about in the article. I'm vulnerable. I talk about how I had some legacy assets that I brought on uh, when I had uh, before I worked here, and the Bonson Group was managing most of my money, not all of it, and some candid conversations I had with David Bonson that uh, really changed my viewpoint and uh, where I kind of went all in and I made some adjustments. Now, I actually think it's different for you, Dea, uh, than Sean and I. Sean and I are direct advice givers and in conversation with clients. I was thinking about you when we were going to record this podcast, and I was thinking you're more on the design side of portfolios and also on kind of the structure and the research and all that. If I was a client, I actually would feel comfortable with you having some of your own assets not within these strategies because I would see it as like uh, R&D. Like I would see it as you're in the test kitchen doing these things, getting familiarity uh, before you brought it to the actual client. Like you're a guinea pig yourself. Yeah, I think that it's, uh, you know, I mean, speaking for myself, I've always been interested in many different aspects of the of financial markets uh, and many different asset classes, many different types of securities, uh, securities that may not be uh, acceptable or may not be appropriate for, for any clients in the Bonson Group. Uh, to give you an example, let's say you, you find a security and you do your analysis on it and it has a... Uh, a ninety percent chance the value of going to zero, but a ten percent chance of, you know, maybe going up by, by six times. Maybe that investment might make sense for somebody who has, as, a little bit of money and they, and they don't necessarily care about taking extraordinary risks that money. So I think that uh, if if you carve up your assets uh, in the sense that okay, I want these to be market related and I want these to be linked to some sort of portfolio goal. And for me, those assets that are linked to a goal, which is in the future, those will all be invested in Bonson uh, Bonson type strategies. Uh, if and th- and then you also have a segment of your assets where it's it's in cash or rainy day fund or whatever that is, and that'll be on you know money market or some sort of treasuries. And then you have maybe have a portion of your assets where you're uh, that are more aspirational, where the there that's maybe where some expe- <laughs> maybe that's where some uh, some of that experimenting you're talking about uh, comes into play, and just getting familiar with new, maybe a new type of financial instruments, uh, new type of risk and return profiles that helps your uh, understanding of the ever changing landscape of capital markets. And I know we've said this before, but I think a, a dangerous thing that happens is. Uh, when they find success in that gambling slush fund or whatever you want to call it, and then it starts to bleed into the more long-term planning assets, and they think, well, this went so well with this portion of money, why wouldn't I try it with a larger dollar amount? Or they do that back-of-the-napkin math we've talked (laughs) about where, oh, my God, could you imagine if I did this? So, yeah, it's dangerous. I heard one advisor, I was listening to his podcast this morning, and he was kind of saying, like, hey, if you're doing some of that stuff that is very pop culture right now, 
and you want to celebrate those successes, do it. You should. Go ahead. But he said, like, don't mistake speculation for investing because that's not investing. And what you don't want to do is get the two mixed up because then you'll start investing the wrong amount of money in the wrong type of strategy. Very true. Uh, absolutely. And I think this is something that um, uh, that people who naturally deal in areas uh, in uncertainty understand maybe intuitively, but but most other people in other careers don't understand. And there's this idea of outcome bias where people naturally link the uh, the quality of the outcome with the quality of the decision making. And when you're when you are in a an arena where there's uncertainty, a lot of times that linkage isn't exactly clear. And you can have a really great outcome with really really bad decision making. Yeah. But you conflate the two, and it can lead to uh, lead to problems later on once you once you start overweighting your decision making. So I think the not being too results oriented in the sense that just because I made X doesn't necessarily mean because I'm uh, because I'm smart or because I'm a genius or 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 the other way around. If if uh, if the returns are bad, it doesn't necessarily mean it's because I didn't do a, a really good job or really good research. There is a, an irreducible amount of uncertainty to uh, t- to financial markets, and uh, th- that's why it's important to to uh, not fall victim to that outcome bias. Yeah, I was uh, listening to a conversation with Michael Mobison, and he has a lot of articles and, and literature that he's written on the difference between luck and skill. Mm. And when he was talking this morning when I was listening to a, a podcast interview with him, it made me think, like, if you've ever been to an NBA basketball game, sometimes the halftime show is they get somebody from the stands to come out and they shoot a half-court shot, mm-hmm. right? And rarely, but sometimes, that guy or gal is going to make that half-court shot. Now, we're going to think this is silly, but do you think that the general manager goes to that person after and says, hey, do you want to try out for the team? Because <laughs> that sample size is not significant, right? And it it probably is more in line with luck than skill. And as funny as that sounds, it helps us to kind of digest that real difference and understanding, um, like you said, that bias towards if the outcome was this, then it must be related to a general skill that I have. That was, sure, a, good, that was sure. a good example. I'm going to start using that one. <laughs> I I I'd never thought of it before, but I, when if you haven't got a chance to listen to Michael Mobison, he's super interesting. Uh, he has a lot of conversations and thoughts on decision making and the importance of making good decisions, both inside investing and outside of investing. And he uses a lot of uh, exterior analogies. For me, that always makes it a lot more palatable because when I'm sticking within the finance realm, sometimes I like have trouble like conceptualizing something. Yeah, Trevor's going to walk by my office later and he's going to hear me say, how many half-court shots do you think you can make? <laughs> As you're talking to a client. Exactly. Now, uh, what were you guys' thoughts on uh, – I wrote a little bit about uh, a little place called Cheesecake Factory. Did, that, did you guys relate to that? It totally hit home because there's, there's a lot of jokes that talk about how big their menu is and it's like pages and pages and – and I think a lot of restaurants, it's been referred to a lot in different podcasts or movies where if you open a restaurant and you have like your five amazing dishes that you're the best at, that's what people go for, right? Mm-hmm. So why would you try and do 50 dishes, you know, all over the place? I don't know. And that's what they have? They have about... Their, or, or... their menu, I looked it up, I Google searched it, is nearly 6,000 words. Wow. So I made a joke yeah. in the article that I usually try to stick these articles to be about 1,000 words. Yes. So you can yeah. stick six thoughts and money articles <laughs> inside of a, 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 a... I'll have to go back and look at the article, though, because one of them was from Business Insider. And there's a reason why the menu is so long. And, and I, sure I'll, I'll have to go back and read it. But it, it might have something to do with like... 
you know, a large group of people can all go to one place and everybody can get their favorites because I know it's antithetical to most business research like of specialization because mm-hmm. in the article, I juxtaposed it right next to the most specialized place we could think of, which is In-N-Out Burger, Yeah, right? Where you're getting a burger and fries in some sort of variation, but the menu is as small as it possibly could be. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I, I mean, I can't remember the last time I've been in the Cheesecake Factory, but I assume the management of the Cheesecake Factory obviously knows that. So there's a reason for that menu being. Maybe one of your listeners will tell you. Yeah, for, somebody for that, email in and tell yeah. me. I'll have to go read the article. Maybe it's but... don't try and fix what's not broken. And yeah, they're, they're like, knows. hey, we're doing all right. Let's who just knows. keep it going. Yeah. Yeah, but that was a transition for our conversation. Um, one of the parts of the article I titled Little Menu, Lots of Customization. And I, I made a joke there that I've gone to In-N-Out with a bunch of friends and everybody's order is unique. So you're telling me that there's this tiny menu, yet everybody can have an extremely unique order, whether it's two patties or one patty yep. or cheese or no cheese or bun or no bun or protein style or animal style. Um, and it's funny that you can get a lot of customization with only a few options. And I think it's mathematical, like Dea will speak to, is that when you have you know one, two, three, four options, the way that you mix those together can start to create a lot of different variations. Talking about uh, combinatorics and <laughs> with in and out orders. <laughs> I don't know what that word means, but, but I trust it's something mathematical. But it's totally true. If you, if you give somebody your in and out order and you want it a specific way and it comes back with pickles, you said no pickles, you're like, what is this? This is ridiculous. This is an outrage. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, that customization is, is, is part of it and it's what everybody comes to expect. Yeah, and the, the reason I transition, and I'll, I'll give the mic over to you, Sean, is – I wanted to talk about what David Monson did in 2020, which I think really highly of. He basically created a new menu. Uh, in the finance world, we had a very defined way we would talk about assets, right? There was fixed income, there was equities, there was cash. And he basically rewrote the script. And he defined for the Bonson Group, for our clients, we're going to say there's seven ingredients. So we're going to have an in and out style menu. But the variation between those seven ingredients and the customization based on somebody's objectives and financial plan is going to be so tailored and specific. I, I mean, I, I think it was pretty ingenious, and I, it helped me allocate my own portfolio by looking at the assets directly in relation to their objective in a financial plan. Yeah, and it's true. Uh, you know, the the landscape has changed, and it, and it always will. It'll continue to evolve. So the traditional way of doing things, and that being investment management or asset allocation, has changed as well. You know, we we are in a low interest rate environment, which changes the way that we look at fixed income. It doesn't necessarily solve a lot of the same problems that it used to. Or if you look at the way that the fixed income market reacted in March of last year, at the beginning of the pandemic, it kind of showed a vulnerability that some of these more conservative bonds can change in value more than you think. And so I think once people kind of realized that, it, it showed that there was a need to construct portfolios, not just at face value with equities, fixed income, and alternatives, because there's a lot more under the hood, and those are very vague topics. And I I thought it did a great job breaking it down into more detail for our clients so they understand what they own and why. That that was perfectly said. Uh, Yeah, primarily stemmed from some of the issues that Sean alluded to in the fixed income market. Uh, Generally speaking, advisors tend to allocate across broad asset classes, broad asset classes, uh, namely equities, fixed income, cash, and alternatives. And uh, very often, if you uh, if you look underneath the hood of those asset classes, there can be significantly different risk and reward profiles of you know different sectors of the of the bond market, for instance. So you want to make sure when you are looking at your broad asset class exposure 
that that is indicative of the risk you're taking. And a lot of times, uh, you know, as Sean said, around March, you start to see that that isn't exactly the case. So, so making sure that uh, the risks our clients take, are taking is uh, identifiable and we're able to clearly communicate that to them. Yeah, you brought up a key point, this idea of bifurcating uh, fixed income into two parts, right? One part that looks a lot more like cash mm. and one part that probably looks a lot more like equities. And understanding the difference when you kind of commingle those two things, it can be really confusing on the client's end. And it's it's interesting to me because so much of what David did in this Operation Magnify for me was bringing clarity that I could talk to a client and say, hey, when we have a bucket of money in this ingredient, I call it an ingredient, um, but like this strategy, let me lay out what the expectation should be. And those expectations can be around income production. They can be around expected rates of return. They can be around volatility. And because you have such specificity, it's much easier to discuss those. And what I found doing with a lot of clients, one of those assets classes is called boring bonds. Is a lot of time I'm setting aside an account where it's boring bonds and I'm relating the size of that account to their actual expenses. So it might be a, a, a 70-year-old retiree that traditionally might have had half their portfolio in that asset class, but I'm showing them, hey, we have five years worth of your expenses set aside in this bucket, and that is really conservative regardless of the size it is proportionally on your balance sheet. And divorcing this idea of your age should drive it or your balance sheet or your conservativeness versus aggressiveness and having a lot more clarity around here's your expenses, here's your needs, and that's why the money is set aside in this specific asset. I, I think that's so incredibly important to, to, to get the client to understand the risk and, their, and the safety net. I think that gives them a huge... Uh, peace of mind, understanding that, look, even if we have the most cataclysmic of market events, this part of your portfolio is totally secure and will will help you fund your expenses for X amount of years or whatever they need that cushion to be. Um, so I think that's, uh, in my opinion, I, I think that's really the only way uh, assets should be allocated. And it also defines uh, where there can be differentiation between my personal portfolio and a client's portfolio because... I am most likely not going to be allocating there because mm -hmm. I have current cash flow. I have stability in my employment that uh, beyond an emergency fund, I'm not really trying to set aside money in boring bonds. But it doesn't mean that that won't be appropriate for somebody else. And as uh, silly as it might be to make an analogy to in and out I I think it is appropriate mm -hmm. that some people are going to order milkshakes and others aren't. And part of it is a preference thing. Um, and part of it from the financial side is also like an objective and an alignment to the financial plan. And that's why it's so important to marry those two things of investment management and financial planning together. Makes sense. All right. I'm excited about the next part. This is my favorite part of this, Tom. Tell me about it. <laughs> so... Do you want to introduce who you were referencing? Nassim I have Talib. no idea what you're talking about. So. No, Nassim Tlaib. Skin okay. in the game. Yes. So, so you're reading a book about by him right I now. It. Oh, you finished awesome. the book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you're excited but to talk about it. Go ahead. You, you take it. I just uh, I love the example because it kind of goes back to the chef that won't eat his own cooking. And he uh, Nassim Tlaib, the author, he writes in a book, um, Skin in the Game and also an Anti-Fragile. He gives these examples that um, back in, Gre I think, Greco Roman days, they figured it out that accountability is really important. And so they would have 
engineers and architects that build bridges, they would have themselves and their families live under the bridge for like the first year that it's up. Because they said, if you feel comfortable putting your stamp of approval that other people can use the bridge and it's safe, prove it. And, and it was Take true. the first bite. You take the first bite. He also gives an example of uh, when they would go to war, if they felt like uh, somehow a legion or a part of the army retreated and it caused um, the loss of the battle or casualties that it shouldn't have, they would randomly pick 10% of the officers and soldiers and put them to death. So that way it would eliminate any cowardice. And I, I just thought it was amazing because it's so true. When you truly have skin in the game, the results, like you mentioned earlier, and they have correlated will probably be better. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the things I talked about in the article too. I said not only that there are a million and one investment choices out there that you have to decide between, there's a million and one opinions out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like you are really good at, Sean, is when people give you an opinion, not that you're actually wanting to gamble with them, but you, you kind of put them to the table and say, would you be willing to wage your money on that? And if so, how much? Because when people have to start to assign a probability or they have to start putting money on their line, those opinions can start to recalibrate really quickly. Yeah, I think Andy Duke has a good book about it uh, called Thinking in Bets, where uh, it's nice to have opinions, but when you actually have to put some money behind them, that's when uh, you know, some insecurity starts to develop and you start to, do, start to do a little bit of work. But I think that that's so important. It goes back to uh, our fiduciary-minded organization, which uh, which try which does everything it, it can to set the incentives so the incentives are aligned. So at least you know everybody. At least you can start knowing that everybody's going in there with the right intent, and everybody's uh, you know skin is in the game, and uh, they're they're invested alongside with you. And I think I think that that peace of mind is is really important for a long term relationship. Well Anybody said. know where that quote came or that uh, adage came from? Skin in the game. What it actually means? The no. etymology or whatever. I'll, I'll I have to look it up after. Oh, oh I thought you knew. I thought no, I, surprises. No, I, I was thinking about putting it in the article, but uh, yeah, I wanted to go to bed, so I actually didn't. <laughs> um, but one thing that I really like that we talk about on this podcast and what kind of finds its way to the article is that if it is a financial truth, it most of the time it should be relatable outside of finance. And I think that this truth actually is like towards the end of the article, I I told people, Hey, if you're at a restaurant, not a bad idea to ask the waiter, Hey, when you're not working, what do you order here? Or, um, ask your general contractor when you're thinking about putting new flooring in, what kind of flooring do you have in your house? Because that's going to reveal a lot. And then you can talk to them how they made that decision based on cost, based on uh, the, the use case for it, the utility, the type of house, the style that they want. And that is a best way, I think, to really derive uh, true, valuable uh, research or data from somebody else. Uh, I even put a, a relation here to your doctor. You know, if they subscribe a, prescribe a medication, is this a medication that you have, doctor? Is this something that you've recommended to your families, right? Because we understand that our, our world is riff with uh, conflicts of interest, mm-hmm. and we just want to make sure that that alignment is in the right place. So true. A- absolutely. And, there, and a lot of times with those interests, like uh, if you go to your car mechanic and you don't know anything about cars and you say, can you please fix my car? <laughs> And they, you know, they come back with, uh, you know, a four thousand uh, dollar maintenance bill. <laughs> Sign here. <laughs> um, a lot of those things stem around asymmetries of information. You go in there not knowing a lot, and obviously the person you're talking to on the other side knows a lot more than you do about the particular subject. And it gets back to why trust is so important in the relationships that we're trying to build with our clients, and why we work so hard to gain the trust of our clients so they can be 
certain that that asymmetry of information is is being used to their benefit, not their detriment. That's so true. The tr- I didn't even think about that until you said it. trust is the most important because you Googling about a medication over the weekend is not going to be the same as years of medical practice and the doctor recommending and telling you, hey, trust me, you need this. And, uh, and it can be dangerous if you think you can learn just as much in a short amount of window and make an important decision on it. Must be so hard to be a doctor right now. I mean, 100% serious. Is that like who out of us three, like who isn't a big WebMD searcher? I am. Yeah. Uh, I'll be honest. Like my wife or I, we have an ailment or something going on. Like I'm going right to WebMD. I avoid WebMD because mostly it says it's really bad things are happening. <laughs> yeah, <it's> me too. <laughs> okay. One for three. It, it makes you panic. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I will research it because my goal is to try and at least know something about it. Yeah, but, uh, to be conversational, to exactly. be able to equip you to ask the right questions. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give uh, us a, uh, a, a charge or a criticism for a future podcasts. One of uh, my clients gave some feedback and he's like, you guys should talk about some stuff that you disagree about. Because it seems like a lot of things like you're like, oh, 100% I agree, whatever. So we'll have to find a topic that we can have a little bit of civil discourse where uh, we're maybe not all on the same page on. Well, we, 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 we disagreed uh, a little bit last time around uh, – what what question to ask your oh, client? Oh yeah, that was because Trevor was kind of being a jerk. And well, question. and we, we no. disagree a little bit. Like, uh, so for, uh, this I is agree. A good, we disagree. This is a good topic <laughs> because um, when we were talking about you know having skin in the game and, and investing your own capital with the strategy, um, and Day and I kind of think that having a, a slush fund or gambling fund that you put in companies that could go to zero, we we think that's okay as long as it's a small percentage. And I think you kind of disagreed when I first brought it up. Yeah, that's a really good point. I I probably do disagree. Um, Have I encouraged or told a client it's okay to side pocket some money for like a gambling account? I I think if they insisted on it, I I probably would kind of be like, hey, it's your call, it's your money. But it's not something I would encourage. Um, But I definitely live in the extremes. Um, like if they told you that they're going on a vacation to Las Vegas and playing poker, would you tell them they can't do that? I would tell them to cancel that trip. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm just joking around. I think those th- two things are different because I, I do think, um, I'm not saying that you two don't have the skill set to do this, but like we talked about, I think people can confuse those two things and we're using the exact same platform to accomplish two different things. One to gamble on and two for long-term investing. I think you have to be very, uh, mature to understand that difference and be able to draw the line. So, but like I said, I do live in the extremes. Like in my car, it's either all the way cold or all the way hot. I, I don't ever <laughs> use the medium temperature. So um, I, I do often look at things black and white. So I, I'm glad that you found something that we disagree on. Yeah. So don't worry, listener. I called him out. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was wrong. Actually, wait, no. Anyway, um, well, we enjoy you listening today. Uh, always send feedback. If you got article ideas or things that you want to hear us talk about, um, feel free to email Tom at thebonsongroup.com. I'm getting used to that. It's a new email address we have. And of course, uh, if you don't mind rating the podcast, leaving comments, and we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts, Thoughts on, on Money. money. Yeah, oh, yeah, Dan nailed it. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future 
future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.